Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story contexts because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. This week, we're continuing our journey into Princess Mononoke with part two. We're going to continue to expound upon our central metaphor about sight. In part one, we talked about how being able to see with eyes unbiased is a critical trait of a magnanimous leader. What process can we use to be able to do that? In part two, we're going to start to transition from our series on hope and belief into our series on limit breaks. Limit breaks are all about that part in the hero's journey where we have this change inside of us that meets the change outside of us and results in a previously thought or held constraint being broken. In Princess Mononoke, we see all of these different characters that have kind of reached a ceiling in terms of change. Internally, they are who they are and they're fairly fixed. Externally, they have reached the optimum for their silo. For example, Iron Town, without taking over other people's land, you know, they've kind of grown to the point that they can grow to. As we start this series on limit breaks, we want to start in a very humble position. Do we break limits by expounding a bunch of energy and escalating, or do we break limits through restraint? And we really see an example of Ashitaka who shows us how he is able to help other people to break through their constraints, the things that are keeping them down, and he doesn't do it by lashing out. He does it by showing restraint. So what can we learn from Ashitaka and how he uses restraint in order to be able to break through the ceiling and unlock a better future? Welcome to Wonder Tour. This is Brian. I'm here with Drew once again for part two of Princess Mononoke. We're going to transition from our discussions about hope and belief to start talking about the concept of limit breaks. So this is a kind of a new, a new phrase or a new concept for me as well. I want to just touch on it again. If you can imagine a Ultima or Zelda kind of a video game where you're the video game character and you've got your power bar building up in the background as you perform actions or as you, as you have time, and you get to that little full green bar and you've got all your capability ready to go and release it in a burst, this limit break to some extent, is not just releasing the energy, but is figuring out a new way to use it, right? Not just let it sort of blunder out in the world or not using it to, you know, crush the <laughs> crush your opponent. But how do you transcend the normal pattern of skills or behaviors that you use to deploy your energy? And that's where we find the limit break is when you sort of broken through into a new, not only a new set of skills, but a new way of understanding how to deploy them. And so that's what's really, I think that's kind of cool. Maybe we'll just go ahead and start with a what if. Does that make sense? Let's do it. All right. So my what if here is we left off last time. Our mountaintop moment was Ashitaka is in Iron Town. He's embedded himself in the society. He's working the bellows with the women. He's kind of understanding their point of view. He's now seen the world from all the different sides. He's got his own society's perspective. He spent time with the wolf clan and the old gods and nature. He spent time in Iron Town. He's had to fight the samurai. He's talked to the monk Jigo. So he's, he kind of sees the world as it is. And then while he's in Iron Town, the conflict gets worse. San, Princess Mononoke, shows up, tries to kill Lady Eboshi. There's a battle. Ashitaka has to use the power that he's got embedded in his demon arm, not to kill anybody, but to try to defuse the conflict, to try to keep them from killing each other. 
And in the process, he's like, all right, well, we just need to we need to separate ourselves from the situation. I need to get out of here. He's carrying the wounded son out. He gets shot kind of accidentally in the process and he's bleeding on the floor. And he's got a moment where in a lot of fantasy movies, he'd go nuclear, right? It's like, okay, that's it. You've pushed me past my limit. I've got my demon arm. This town is going down. That'd be the classic Western movie setup here, right? He'd go full Clint Eastwood on him, right? Yeah, and he builds up that energy bar, right? It's almost like he has, the, like we talked about, this energy bar that's hidden and it's being built up by this passion and you know, it'd be charged by like anger or hatred or something, right? And we see that with some of the other characters where their bars get full and they turn demon. <laughs> That's literally their response is they turn into a demon when their bar gets full because their bar that they're filling for their energy is being fueled by hatred. For Ashitaka, he's filling up this inner bar of wisdom instead of of hatred. And so since he's filling up this bar of wisdom, he gets shot and he doesn't he doesn't lash out. He doesn't resort to violence. He responds to violence with restraint and with peace instead. And he just starts walking out. So our what if here is what if Ashitaka goes demon arm on the town when they try to kill Mononoke? he has the opportunity to to escalate further, right? We keep seeing these escalations in battle. We keep seeing the, the threats getting more severe. The attacks on the samurai start in a distance and then they get closer and then you have a whole army going into the town eventually. The attacks from the woodland creatures start like guerrilla attacks on the side, but then they're literally getting more and more into all of the, you know, all of the boars are going to attack. It's kind of escalating. And so he has the opportunity the patterns of the world are forcing him into that escalation. Like he tries to put himself in the middle and diffuse it. And it's, there's too much energy. There's too much hatred. There's too much suspicion. And so, yeah, he has the opportunity to escalate further and to just kind of destabilize the situation even more, generate even more hatred and just prove, oh, well, he's on the side of the wolf girl. And that would, I would suggest that would cement everybody's point of view. He would prove to everyone involved that conflict was the only way to resolve it and that being more powerful, that the demonic energy is the only reason he's successful and so he's not to be trusted. It would sort of demonstrate to everybody, it would lock in their worldviews. Yeah, it's like he's the only growth mindset in the picture. And if he locks in on an ideology in this situation, I think he's locking in on like a romantic ideology. He would be saying that, okay, the dimension that I care most about is San. That's it. You know, if you're going to harm San, that's then it's over. I'm going to let hatred, the demon arm, literally, which literally represents hatred. I'm going to let it out. And it's just going to tear everybody apart here. And it's also going to tear himself apart. Right. Right. Because, like you said, he's basically locking in this narrative. He is the change agent that is able to, from the bottom up, spawn this change by being a servant leader, by acting differently than everybody else acts. And so if he gives in and he starts to say, OK, well, you know, these people deserve it anyway, so I'm just going to tear them apart, then there's no nature humans left, right? He becomes more of the human. He gives into the human side and he just now he's just in fighting with the humans, just like the rest of them. Right. He recognizes that channeling that energy, using that power just to win, just sort of reinforces the pattern. Like he can't actually fix the problem. He can't resolve the conflict by himself. He can just point out where the, you know, where the opportunities are. He can point out where the conflicts are. And so what he does is he channels this energy not to go kill a bunch of samurai. 
but to open this ridiculous castle door, the, the fortress door that only 10 men could lift. Like, he uses his power to walk away. Like, literally, he has to exert you know, his superhuman strength just to remove himself and San from the situation and sort of defuse the conflict. And he's able to do that because he's channeling all this energy that he's built. But he's also able to do that because there are enough people in the town that are sympathetic to him from his past actions. He's built up enough credit. He's established a rapport that they're like, just let him go. And so that's a really strong moment. And it's not the Aragorn facing down the Orc Horde moment that you necessarily expect out of a hero's journey. No, it's the filling up of these different bars of wisdom like we talked about. So I love that we're hitting this first as we start to wade into limit breaks that there's these kind of invisible bars that need to be filled up in order to do a limit break, or at least that's our first analogy for it. And you're right, in the limited amount of Ashitaka's journey that we see thus far, he's kind of filling up like he's filling up weird bars to be doing a limit break. He's filling up the compassion bar because he, he has that initial thing where he comes through the war zone and he shoots off the guy's arm and the guy's head. And he's like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm a monster. And he's like, I got to get out of here. Otherwise, I'm just going to kill more samurai and I'm just going to cause more conflict. And then he saves the people from Irontown and he takes them back. And he has the interaction with the wolves. He's filling up this compassion bar. He's filling up this servant bar. A lot of the series that we've talked about so far, his integrity bar, right? He's keeping his integrity bar high. And by filling up these unexpected bars, he reaches his own mountaintop here where he gets a limit break. And his limit break, and this is why I love this movie, is not some external green explosion like there would be normally in anime where he goes Super Saiyan. It's just not. There's not even a single moment where you're like, that was a limit break. The limit break for me is when they tell him that he can't leave and that it takes 10 men to lift the gate. And he just pushes it. He doesn't even like grunt that much. He just slowly pushes it open and walks out. And it's not, it's the way he's channeling his energy through restraint. That's the limit break. It's that he's not going to explode on the town. Instead, he's going to positively utilize this energy that he's built up. And he's just going to exit. And he's going to protect San. And he's going to protect the people by doing so. Right. And so that, that restraint, that thinking about, you know, the world's not binary and people aren't necessarily my enemies that can be contagious, right? And so the first contagion victim is San, right? She's completely nihilistic at this point. She's like, I'm just going to go into Irontown by myself with my knife and kill this person that's leading them, right? Like she's, she doesn't have a plan. She doesn't have any long-term hope or goals. She's just completely desperate. And he diffuses that conflict and brings her out of it. And in return, she saves his life. She's been suspicious of him, telling him to go away, telling him she doesn't trust him, telling him that he's stupid, the whole movie. So she pays him back by taking him back into the forest, back to see the forest spirit to get healed. And again, another great way this movie sort of subverts tropes and expectations is the most touching moment of intimacy we have between these two young characters that are in a relationship in the whole movie is he's, you know, weak and recovering in the forest and she's trying to get him to eat something and he's too weak to eat. And so she literally like chews up the food for him and like puts it in his mouth. And it's, you know, it's a kiss, but it's not. It's romantic, but it's not. But it's the closest moment of intimacy. And it's her sharing as much as she can with him. Like, she's literally like the breath from her body, the food from her body is what she's using to sustain him. And it's a really cool moment. He acts like a Jedi, doesn't he? He really does. He follows the teachings of Yoda 
fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. He understands if you give fear and anger a foothold, then it will consume every bit of you. And that's because that's what he's seeing. And he's empathizing with the people around him who have let that happen, right? Right at the beginning, he empathizes with the boar. He's like, I don't want to kill you. He shows regret for even killing the boar, even though it was trying to destroy his village, because he's like, oh, my gosh, you've been consumed by hatred. He's very sympathetic towards somebody who's consumed by hatred. And I don't think that that's something that's talked about very often, especially in the West. I don't think that we are very sympathetic to somebody who's consumed by hatred in the way that Ashitaka is. And I think the Jedi are very much the same way, or at least that's the teaching, is, hey, everything requires balance. You know, there's a reason that people are the way they are, their experience, and we got to meet them where they're at. That's kind of like the filling up of the different bars of wisdom in order to get to a limit break. Like we talked about last episode, sometimes you got to get on the bellows with people and physically be there and, and exert energy and stuff like that so that you can fill up that compassion bar. Yeah, and that's a choice that you can make responding to a very difficult situation. He's kind of thrust upon this journey. He's not like, hey, I'm going to go out into the world and see if I can find a way to resolve conflicts. He's like, I've been exiled from my village and I'm dying and, you know, and I've got this demonic power. Right. And he's choosing to use that to just go out into the world and see if he can avoid other people having that experience, right? So since you brought up the Jedi, right, my other, you know, as we started talking about limit breaks, the example for us old school nerds that comes to mind, of course, is the return of the Jedi, right? The throne room scene where Luke has his limit break in two parts, right? The, the Emperor has been, you know, he's, he's prisoner and he's watching the fleet get destroyed and everything seems hopeless. And then Vader threatens his sister. So his first limit break is he channels all of that fear, all of that protective energy, all of that resentment into becoming strong enough to actually defeat Darth Vader, actually defeat his father for the first time. But then he makes the second break of realizing where that goes and channeling that energy into, you know, you're wrong, you failed, your highness, I'm a Jedi like my father before me, throwing the lightsaber away choosing another path and you know and in the short term it doesn't work out for him and in the long term it turns out to be the right call but that gathering all that energy even if the energy comes from suffering even if the energy comes from other people's hatred even if the energy causes conflict inside of you using it to become powerful and then choosing what to do with that power and when not to deploy it that restraint is only comes from wisdom right only comes from that's the next level of insight into the world in the next level of insight into skillful action and so we see the same kind of thing in a much quieter potentially quieter moment here but we see the same thing with ashitaka where he chooses to take his resentment and his suffering and his recognition of the conflicts and his all his power and try to make things one level less conflict one level less hatred He's very diligent in how he takes and allows the outside environment to impact him because it's foolish to think that we won't be impacted by our environment. There's going to be conflicts. There's going to be interpersonal issues. There's going to be things that make running a business difficult during certain times. And we can't just avoid those things. So I think what Ashitaka teaches us about reaching a limit break is just to be careful where we let those things push us. Because if we let those things fill up our hatred bar like it does for the white boar Okoto, then eventually it just destroys us and it causes a path of, you know, we leave everything in a wake of destruction around us. 
we can literally choose to use those same inputs, those same, like you said, suffering and pain that we're seeing around us, violence. We can use those inputs. We can use them in the same way that we see the great magnanimous leaders of history use them where they let those instead fill up their energy bars of compassion, to fill up their energy bars of love, to fill up their energy bars of empathy. And as a result, when it comes time to have a limit break, I think it's not even just about like, can you reach a limit break? Can you get past your previous state that you were in and reach another like 2.0 level? The question is, how are you going to use that limit break? If you have the energy, how is it going to come out into the world? And I want to bring in another piece of this here because we see a different type of limit break happening at the end of this movie when we see the forest spirit die. And watching it for the first time, you're like, oh, my gosh, like, no, I wanted the forest spirit to come back and to bring everything back the way it was. And then you kind of come around to the idea that, no, like it couldn't go back to the way that it was. Because inherently there is conflict between the humans and, and between nature. And what we need is a new path forward. We can't always avoid conflict as humans, but we have to try something new going forward. And so we see a different type of limit break happening here where the forest spirit kind of gives up itself. And it's like diffused throughout the environment, right? Yeah. No, this is this is a great sequence, right? And exactly as you said, this story is not really Ashitaka saves the world story. He's the observer. He's an avatar of some things that we need to understand about the world, and he's showing us some skillful action. But all of these societies go through a limit break, right? They've reached the limit of what they can accomplish with their own singular viewpoint and their own singular missions. And they're, you know, and they and they just keep escalating. Everybody just keeps escalating until it gets completely out of control. But the small actions of trying to help out and then finally, okay, we got to give the forest spirit back his head, you know? Yeah, then we have this wonderful moment this is a very anime moment. You wouldn't, again, you probably wouldn't see this the same way, where you've got a couple minutes of screen time, which nothing but the green very slowly coming back on the mountainside, where it's just that, like, okay, we've had the cataclysm, we've had the, we've had the chaos, we've had everything fall apart, and now we see the rebirth. Now we see spring, and the walls are gone, the town is gone, nature spirit has wiped away a lot of the pieces of the conflict, but the people are still there. The nature spirit presumably could have wiped out all the people in the middle of the lake if it wanted to as well, but it doesn't, right? And so now we have, the people are still there. They still have their goals. They still have each other. Nature is coming back. It still has its patterns and energy, but it's not going to be the same. And we need to find a new version of it where these things coexist more smoothly. Movie doesn't give us an answer, but it does give us a, you know, the rebirth has to come through abandoning the singular viewpoints that we had going in. Yeah, the nature spirit shows restraint in not tearing down everything, right? The nature spirit sets the seed of rebirth instead of just wiping out all things. And I think it's that restraint that the nature spirit shows. It's kind of like a, it's reciprocated from Ashitaka. The nature spirit and Ashitaka are both very weirdly similar in that they don't have a bias here, really. They have people to protect. They have people that they're for. They're not willing to sacrifice ideals. They're not willing to sacrifice the process in order to reach a certain outcome. And so in the end, they're able to achieve a different type of limit break that the other people in the environment could not reach without them. They just couldn't because they were, they're trying too hard. They're fighting against people and they're not able to see that the real limit break comes through restraint, not through fighting. 
Well, and I love that you brought it back to the vision, right? Because I was I wanted to tie these two episodes together. Ashitaka's use of his energy, his choice of restraint, his choice of actions, and the same thing scaled up the world's choice of action, you know, the nature spirit's choice of actions. You can't make that choice. You can't choose restraint until you've done the hard work first, until you understand what's going on around you, until you've, you know, used your compassion, until you've worked on the bellows, until you've walked around and seen the world from different points of view. That's what we're seeing here is that if you're informed by compassion for all sides, if you're informed by a true understanding of the situation, then you can see where to apply leverage, right? The thing that I should be doing with my time right now is opening this gate and getting out of here. The thing that I should be doing with my time now is working really, really hard to get the forest spirit's head back. That part is a little bit, you know, is a very specific sort of fantasy movie goal. But the idea of having the insight before you use all your energy the counterexample, as you said, right, is both the humans who keep fighting for just their one goal, and then especially the, the real point on it is the Boers, is Lord Okoto, where they are so angry and so focused on their viewpoint that they get stupid and their senses trick them. The humans use boar skins and animal smells so that they don't even notice that they're being surrounded and attacked. And they goad them into a rage so that they run into landmines and get destroyed, right? So blind rage, you know, literally... The old boar is blind, and then they're all morally blinded by rage. That only goes one place. That never, that will not resolve this fundamental challenge between worldviews. I like that you brought it all the way back to sight here, because there are a lot of people who are blind in this situation. And I think we're all blind, and we need to recognize that in certain dimensions, where we just can't see clearly due to our own bias, or we give in to the anger and the hate in certain scenarios. And this Wonder Tour is really about recognizing and reflecting on those areas and then moving forward towards improvement. And I think that we do kind of have an ideal state here where we have clear vision. It's like our central metaphor is eyes unclouded by hate. That's what we're trying to get to. And having those eyes unclouded is a tactic that allows us to properly have limit breaks. It allows us to utilize the energy, store it up, Build up the energy required because that it requires restraint to build up and fill up the energy bars. It requires restraint to fill up the right energy bars and not just give in to the easy ones because anger is a very easy emotion to have as a human. Anger is where the water of emotion just like wants to run in a lot of scenarios. It's just like the easiest thing to do is become angry and then we let that build up into contempt and hate and then eventually it. To steal the words of John Mark Comer, you create a personal hell for yourself, essentially, once that happens. Once you are a hateful person like Okoto, you just become a demon. You know, maybe you don't have the weird worm things coming out of you, but as a human, it can easily happen. We've all met people that are like that. And you're like, man, wow, you're an Okoto. You just kind of let the world get to you too much. You let the pain fuel the wrong energy bars. And when it was time for a limit break, you became a demon instead of helping to solve the problem through that limit break. Yeah. So I think that's our takeaways from this movie is that we had a really fresh angle on the challenges, you know, the conflict between factions, the conflict between ideologies, the conflict between elements of society striving for the same resources. It doesn't propose any easy answers to us, but it offers tactics, right? It offers the way to avoid escalating the conflict, way to avoid feeding the fire is to first open your eyes, don't assume you understand, don't be attached to your own viewpoint, 
walk into the situation and try to be compassionate, try to be perceptive, try to work the bellows and see if you can find out where the other people are coming from. And then if you have the opportunity to deploy your energy with your insight, how can you use it to defuse conflict? How can you use the energy to find a new joint way of operating that isn't doesn't have this hatred built into it? In in fantasy movie style, like these are it's not black and white, but everything's amped up to 11. Everything is a very world shattering level of energy and power, right? We don't have that in our daily lives, but we absolutely have, I can go demon arm on somebody, like I can let my rage get the better of me, or I can use that built up energy to find a path of restraint, to find a path of protecting somebody rather than attacking somebody, or stepping away rather than stepping in, if that's not going to help. I like how we started to define one analogy for limit breaks. I don't think there's one analogy for anything that's perfect. You know, all metaphors eventually break down. And I'm really looking forward as we go through the rest of this series to kind of integrating these different viewpoints on limit breaks. Because I know we've talked a lot about the flipping the script moment where we subvert expectations. We see Ashitaka and the nature spirit flipping the script here. And so, Brian, I'll let you introduce us to next week's episode. But I think it's really critical that we leverage the limit breaking moments to flip the script, because if we flip the script, that allows us to remove the previous constraints and potentially build the new green world. Right. OK, well, so we're going to go from a uh, nuanced movie with a variety of sympathetic factions where the challenge is to understand them to a movie that is much more black and white. We're going to come back to our friends in the Marvel Universe and we're going to hit Infinity War and Endgame. And we'll have the struggle against Thanos and the irresistible force challenge. We see a whole different set of limit breaks in a, in a very different angle from this next one. So. Until then, thanks everyone for joining us once again. We had a great time and hope you got something out of it. Just remember, as always, character is destiny.